In the Woods for episode 66 of the Trapping Today podcast. I'm your host, Jeremiah Wood. Thank you for listening and tuning in. And uh, whether it's in the woods, in a camp, in the middle of nowhere, whether it's the fur shed, whether it's on location, on the trap line, wherever I take you along here, um, the Trapping Today podcast is brought to you by Cots Brothers Lures. So thanks to Cots Bros. K-A-A-T-Z-B-R-O-S dot com. That's their website. Check them out. Trapping supplies, uh, books, DVDs, lures, baits, urines. Um, great prices, great service, and excellent guys to deal with. So uh, get get on that website. Um, give them a shot. Place an order. And thank them for supporting the podcast. I'm sitting here. Uh, just watched the sunrise. Had a nice cup of coffee. And getting ready to uh, have a little bit of time before I got to get out and start working today. So I thought I'd record a podcast so I can upload this when I get back uh, Sunday night. And uh, anyway, I wanted to talk today about a book that I read. I've been wanting to get into this in the past. I didn't have time in the last episode. Uh, but I like I like reading outdoor books. I, I love them, actually. And... There's all kinds of different topics that uh, that you can read about, and uh, one of my favorite outdoor types of outdoor books are are books that cover the era back in the early days uh, when trapping was a big deal. When trapping was kind of a, it was a way for a lot of people to make a living, and it's pretty fascinating to me uh, how how people operated places they trapped, uh, what furs were bringing, and everything else. So there's kind of a special book here. It's called Mink, Mary, and Me. It's written by Chick Ferguson in 1946. And the first time I heard about this book, um, actually I heard about it way long before I ended up buying it and reading it, uh, because it's very hard to find. Uh, there's a guy named John Solo in Absorkey, Montana, and when I was living there, I got to know him a little bit. And, and he wasn't from there. He'd been all over the place. And he was kind of an older guy. Extremely knowledgeable. And he was, uh, you know, an outdoorsman, hunter, fisherman. I think he did a little trapping when he was younger. And he found out that I was a trapper. And I liked outdoor reading, outdoor books and stuff. And we got to talking for a while. And he said, he said you really, we, we swapped ideas on different books that we'd read and stuff. And he said, you need to read this book, Mink, Mary, and Me. He said, it's just an incredible story about a trap line up in northern Canada uh, back in the day and, and just an awesome story. And, and so I kind of kept that in the back of my mind. And, oh, he had a copy of it that he, he wouldn't part with. And I don't blame him. It was, you know, kind of like a, a, a very rare copy of this book. I think it was only printed once, actually. And uh, so I, I got online and I said, I'm going to so I'm gonna try to figure out where I can get this book. So Mink, Mary, and Me, look on eBay, Amazon, A-Books, a bunch of sites. And I could not find a copy of this book for less than $100. So for a guy like me, that's kind of a lot of money to drop on one book. And I read a lot of books. So I kind of put it off and thought, well, I guess I, you know, I'm, I'm going to have to wait and and read other books and see see what happens. Maybe someday this will come up and I'll find an affordable copy. Well, the years went by and it was probably about five or six years 
or six or seven years after I'd actually talked with John and I had kind of a, I'd set up an alert on eBay that whenever a copy of this came up, I'd get an email and you'd see a copy like maybe once every six months or once a year and they're all $100, $150. And all of a sudden uh, a copy came up and it was advertised for $60. And as soon as that came on, I, I, I pulled it up there and I looked at it really quick at the listing and I, and I bought it immediately. So, so I got this copy for 60 bucks and I don't think I've seen it for that cheap uh, ever since. But I absolutely love the book and it was well worth the, the, the $60 I dropped on it. So just a little background. This guy, uh, Chick Ferguson... I tried to do some research, and there's really nothing on Ferguson uh, other than this book and a little bit of boxing stuff, which is, is kind of odd. But so Chick was, in back in the early 1900s, he was born in 1895, and he, in his 20s, he was a semi-professional boxer. And he did that for, for a fair bit of time. Um, he was born in somewhere, I think, in Minnesota. And the boxing career kind of, you know, the boxing careers are generally quite short to begin with. And he was getting up on age and he was getting into his, you know, getting close to 30 years old. And and uh, he realized that maybe he wasn't going to be able to make a, a good career out of this. So he bought a photography studio in Wolf Point, Montana, of all places. I think he spent some time in Great Falls, Montana, and then he he ended up buying this studio in Wolf Point, which if you've ever been there, I've been there once. Uh, it's a town in, I guess you could call it eastern Montana, uh, north northeast Montana, and it's it's a it's a real small place. It was probably bigger back then, but it's a real small town, small area, very rural ranching country farming, ranching country out there, a uh, beautiful area. But he had a photography studio there back in the, in the 1920s, I guess. So he things, you know, things weren't going spectacularly. He wasn't making any money. He was having a hard time making a living. And he had a friend uh, from Montana that had gone up uh, a couple years before, had gone up to Northwest Territories, Canada, and ran a trap line. He had heard about uh, this and about the opportunity to trap fur up there, way out in the middle of nowhere. And he was kind of, you know, it was kind of appealing to him that that you could actually do that and make money. And fur prices were really good. So at at some point, this friend of his convinced Chick to join him up north on the trap line. Um, they ended up going to an area and there was kind of a mutual friend there that had this trap line and it was, I think they took a train from Great Falls, Montana to Waterways, Alberta, which is somewhere in, uh, in the vicinity of the, uh, the Peace River. Actually, it's no, it's south of there, south of uh, Lake Athabasca and from waterways, I think that was kind of the end of the line. They took, uh, they traveled by canoe, I believe. 
down to um, Athabasca and they went down the Slave River to Great Slave Lake and Fort Resolution. And I believe it was a journey uh, of about 120 miles across Great Slave Lake to an area called Fort Providence, which was extremely remote at the time. And the fort was basically just a Hudson's Bay fur trading outpost. And there was a village with some uh, Indians there, some, some Native Americans. And there was you know a few rivers that flowed in to the lake around that area. And that was about it. That was just basically the middle of nowhere. They ran their trap line up the Horn River and a series of lakes and streams in that watershed. So he spent a winter there. They built a kind of a, a rough little cabin. Uh, they did some trapping. They didn't really know what they were doing. They weren't great trappers. They didn't have a lot of supplies and equipment. Uh, but they spent the winter trapping. They had some success. They were able to come out, sell some fur, uh, get some pretty good money. And at this time, Chick had just got married. And his wife, whose name was Mary, uh, when he left for the trap line, she said, basically, get ready because I'm going with you next year. Once you get settled in, I'm, I'm going to join you on the trap line and, and be out in the woods. And he was kind of like, ah, I don't know, you know, the trap line is not really a place for a woman. You know, remember this was the 1930s, 1920s, 1930s. Uh, society was a lot different back then. And, and this was really rough country, very remote, extreme conditions, extreme cold weather, long winters, um, little to no access. If you have health problems, you're pretty much going to die out in the woods. Uh, uh, you might not see a human being for months at a time out there when you're on the trap line. Uh, but she was a very determined individual and very independent, hard worker. Um, and, and she was going to go on the trap line. So anyway, he came back after that first season and, uh, it came to be that Mary joined him, uh, for the second season, uh, up North. And they, this was this was quite a, a task to get this whole trap line up and running, um, and it was you know it was a long journey just to get to the fort. It's kind of interesting. Uh, it was kind of sad. They got into Fort Providence, and this was about the time where uh, a lot of the Indian tribes or Native American tribes were not. Uh, they hadn't had a lot of contact with the outside world, and these. Fur trading posts were just coming in. Uh, the government w had people coming in, like there were, um, and then there were churches, like there were missionaries that were establishing churches and schools, uh, which I believe they're called missions, and they were they were trying to educate and kind of civilize the the Indians at the time, and unintentionally there was a lot of uh, disease transmission that the native tribes had not been accustomed to. So when Chick and Mary first got into Fort Providence, there was a flu epidemic going around and it was just killing tons and tons of, of people. Those Indian tribes, there were, there were, there were certain tribes that almost the whole tribe was wiped out by the flu. Um, they just didn't have the re resistance, um, in their bodies to to be able to uh, to fight this 
you know, fight what, what would be a pretty minor issue for, for other people. Um, they succumb to it quite easily. So, so there was a lot of death. There was a lot of sadness. It was kind of depressing. And that was kind of Mary's introduction to the North and everybody had the flu, even a bunch of the, you know, the, the trading post people, people in the fort, uh, somehow Chick and Mary, uh, skated by and they didn't get sick. They, they had to supply at the fort. And of course, this is in the middle of nowhere. So supplies, you can't really haul your own supplies in. So you have to buy them there. And they cost so much to freight to the fort. And then the traders know that they have you kind of by the short hairs and you can't buy anywhere else. So they mark the prices up quite a bit. The prices were just astronomically high uh, to buy food and other supplies that they needed for the winter, but they had to buy them. They ended up taking out some credit with the Bay Trader and, uh, and purchasing what they needed for the year. And this was sometime around June, I believe, or July. And basically the, the summers are so short up there that the time is just a, at an absolute premium and you have to get up river while the water is high enough to float a canoe. And then you have to be able to freight all of your supplies into the trap line, cash those supplies, and then basically just work, work, work to get food gathered up and get cabins built and secured and taken care of and get, get ready for freeze up when you start trapping. So they, you know, it was quite a deal. And actually later on in the, going into the, like the 1940s, uh, bush planes started coming in and they just completely changed this whole process by being able to fly supplies in what used to take chick, uh, maybe a couple of weeks to bring his supplies into his cabin, a bush plane could fly them in in 45 minutes. So that changed everything. But early on, they didn't have that luxury. So they had a big freighter canoe loaded up with supplies and they were paddling it up river. They would get to rapids. They'd have to try to line the canoe through the rapids or they'd have to portage and uh, take everything out of the canoe, haul it around and uh, load it back in on the other side. And there were several of these series of rapids. It was just, it was quite a, quite a challenge. It was days and days at a time to get supplies up. They get the supplies in. Uh, the first year they had this old rundown cabin that was in rough shape and, and uh, they survived through it. They ended up building a new cabin. They built a series of cabins all along their trap lines and kind of just built things up as they went. They'd shoot, usually shoot a moose in the fall one or two moose to get them through the winter. They would store the meat way up in a cache. Up, up, uh, basically, a cache is a, a little tiny sort of cabin that's perched up on four long poles um, that you have to use a ladder to get to. And it keeps, in theory, it keeps the bears out, uh, keeps the bears from tearing apart your food supply. Unfortunately, it doesn't always work perfectly and... Uh, they had situations where bears would get in and just destroy their complete food supply for the year. <clears throat> it happened on a couple of occasions. Uh, but that was the general kind of way of doing things. They'd get in just as, as soon as they could and then get everything ready till freeze up and, and do a little hunting 
they'd, they'd set gill nets and, and catch fish. There were a lot of white fish in that area that they'd use to feed dogs. They started out there running trap lines on foot. And then over time, they, they got a dog team and realized how they could cover a heck of a lot more ground with dogs and, uh, and be able to run bigger trap lines and catch more fur. So it was a really neat deal. And one of the things that struck me that, that we don't really think about as trappers now is this was kind of, um, trapping was a means to an end for, for a lot of people here, Chick included. <coughs> and I, by what I mean by that is, uh, he was trapping because this was, you know, economically, it was a tough time in the country and fur was still really high, but this was great depression era. And when he moved up North, it was right about the time the great depression hit. So there were no jobs. There were very few jobs. A lot of people out of work, people hungry, people couldn't pay their bills. Um, but going up in the woods and trapping fur, you know, fur prices were still high and it was one of the best livings that someone could uh, put together. So this was kind of like he was there to be able to catch enough fur to go back to the outside and, and uh, you know, start a new business or do, do, something, do something else. So this, this trap line was kind of a means to a different end. Whereas nowadays, we, a lot of us are like, man, I just want to trap. This is, you know, we, we work our other jobs so we can have enough uh, money to spend to go trapping, which is, which is kind of ironic. Um, but it, at the same time, I think after they got going and they were in the woods, you can tell by his writing and, and how he describes everything that this was just sheer joy on the trap line. They absolutely loved it. Other than it being pretty, really remote and challenging, um, this was kind of the end. The, the, you know, this was not the means to an end. This was, this was what they, they ended up loving to do. And eventually Chick and Mary did, uh, they kept leaving and coming back. And, uh, and eventually though, they did leave, leave the woods and, and, um, I think came to this realization that, well, hang on these, you know, it was tough out there and, and we, we accomplished it and we made our money and we're going back to civilization. But those were some of the best years of our lives, as tough as they were. Um, the things we got to experience, the, the things that we learned. Um, Chick, this guy was the, one of the hardest workers that, that um, you could imagine. And one of the things that I really enjoyed reading when I, you know, in between the lines, a lot of the stuff that he said was um, at one point, they had the chance to go out um, to town and things were getting tough in the woods. And he said, basically, if I go out to town, I'm going to collect a government check because everybody was out of work. Everybody was on welfare. He said, I could stay in the woods and it's harder, but I'm independent and I'm earning my own living and I'm not relying on the government to support me. So he went back to the woods just because he had that independent spirit and he had pride uh, that he was he was going going to make this work um, as hard as he had to work he was going to make it happen that was pretty cool so over time they they worked and developed this these trap lines there were some others that were trapping uh, upstream from them in that same river drainage 
Um, they had really big, sprawled-out trap lines. Um, but there, what it was was basically there were Indians that settled in different camps in particular areas, away around away from the fort a little ways, and then there were white trappers who uh, were were in there that would trap for the winter, and they were kind of scattered about. And it was also this time that uh, a white trapper in Northwest Territories was kind of. Uh, maybe not the most popular person around, um, maybe especially uh, American white trappers. And there was quite a bit of conflict um, between the Indians and the white trappers. Um, and and ch- from Chick's experiences, he he was not a big fan of, of the Indians, um, let's put it that way. And he had, the reason was uh, they would they would camp in an area and they would just completely deplete the resources, the fish and wildlife uh, resources, and then leave. So he had a trap line. He was trying to kind of manage that line. Um, It was not a registered trap line or anything. So he was just trying to, you know, he'd only kill so many fish. He'd only kill two moose. He would uh, trap a certain amount of fur and then he'd go off to a different area of the trap line. Uh, the other white trappers that were above him, he would never go up above a certain point because he respected their territory and so on. Uh, they had some beavers. Beaver were had been trapped really hard and they weren't very common. They were starting to come back a little bit. And Chick and Mary had some beavers that were settled in front of their main cabin, like right there on the bank next to them. And they weren't trapping them because they wanted those beavers to be able to to reproduce and kind of colonize other areas. And of course they were gone one time and the Indians came in and shot the beavers and, and they're there. That was the end of that. Uh, they were freighting their supplies upriver uh, in canoe and the Indians set up a weir on the river and blocked uh, blocked the canoe from, blocked them from being able to float through. Um, so they had to carry their canoe around and the, the weir was kind of, it, it blocked all movement of whitefish upstream. So they were catching all the whitefish below Chick and Mary's cabin. So they had basically no fish to catch to feed their dogs uh, for that winter. So uh, they'd come in, they'd shoot a whole bunch of moose. And one time Chick shot two moose and he got all the meat, you know, he, 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 quartered it and kind of got all the meat cooled off and stashed it in the woods and they went up to their cabin to drop their gear off and then come back to get the meat a couple days later and they came back and the Indians had stolen the meat so (laughs) there was just a you know that he would leave a cabin for a year and he'd come back and they were they'd steal all his traps uh they'd run his trap lines um it was just it was a tough, tough situation. And, and there was, they were make, they had, he, he was just, you know, an independent hard worker. He just kind of wanted to be left alone. And they did not like the fact that he was very successful on that trap line. So they actually wanted to uh, get him kicked out um, of the area and, and uh, get some of the other white trappers kicked out so that they could have the, the trap lines. It was kind of, it was kind of an interesting little conflict there that 
basically Chick's attitude was, ah, I'm gonna, I'm just gonna work harder. Um, you're not gonna you're not gonna kick me out. You're not gonna discourage me. And he kind of just pushed through it. Um, I think, but it but it kind of highlights the, a lot of the tensions there at the time. It was a time of great change in the north. Uh, the tribes were used to doing things a certain way. Uh, the area was kind of being civilized, civilized and colonized by other people that had different cultures and different ways of doing things. And, and of course, those two cultures were, were going to be in conflict. Uh, one of the interesting things looking back nowadays is I, I could be wrong in this. And if anybody's up there or knows about it, you can correct me. And I'd, I hope I'm wrong, but you know, I, I really enjoy watching Andrew Stanley, uh, Fur Harvesters, NWT. Um, he's got a, a U, there was a TV show I, I've mentioned before. He's got a, a YouTube channel, The Wild North, and he traps up there in Northwest Territories in, in kind of, you know, not the same exact area that, that Chick Ferguson was in, but, but he's up there and he is, I guess, half uh, native. So his mother is a native and his father is white. And I believe if I could be wrong, but as my understanding is that uh, white people cannot trap in Northwest Territories. You cannot have a registered trap line up there. Uh, I've heard Andrew mention it uh, in the past that his father cannot trap, um, but he can trap because he is half native. So I think some of that, conflict came to a head at some point and and there were some uh, things put in place to try and resolve resolve some of that back decades and decades ago but this was quite a story and chick this was the only book that he wrote they actually wrote some stories for different magazines while they're in the woods um, on the trap line in the winter um, but as this was the only book he wrote but he was an incredibly gifted writer I, I really enjoyed his writing style he was very well versed and, uh, and it's quite a story. So I thought what I would do is read you just kind of an, uh, a little section of the book, Mink, Mary, and Me. And I thought it would be cool to get into uh, a time at which they were kind of, they, Chick and Mary had been in the woods for quite a while and they were kind of getting they they were basically they were hitting their stride so they were they had supplied a lot of things they caught enough fur to pay bills and to buy a lot of supplies and traps and different things that they needed to be effective on the trap line they had all their cabins set up they were good at trapping they'd you know they had improved their skills at trapping fur handling and the fur bear populations were on a upward swing. And so they, you know, they went through cycles, like I want to say were about seven year cycles where um, there'd be a lot of fur in the woods and, and chick had, had come into the, onto that trap line around the time at when the cycle was at its low, but it was kind of headed back up. And after a few years, he, he kind of, they kind of hit it just right. And they anticipated this. They were, he was very smart, um, very smart and forward thinking. And he did a lot of things that worked to his favor because of his, um, his intelligence and his ability to think things through. 
And so when when he saw this upswing uh, in fur numbers, he really um, he really took advantage of it. So this is kind of the time they're they're back onto the trap line. They're getting ready for this big fur harvest. With the passing of each day, our enthusiasm and excitement grew. Upon this winter's fur catch depended our immediate future. If my 300 pelt dream came true, I could plan toward taking Mary back to a more or less comfortable place in the outside world. She liked the North and was doing fine, but had already spent more years in its complete isolation than either of us had ever anticipated. With so much at stake, and in order to get everything ready, we worked hours at that no union boss would ever condone. We checked and double-checked, found nothing wanting. Eight equipped cabins, good dogs, and plenty of feed to keep them going. 800 traps, excellent guns, good scents, plenty of bait, experience. All were at our command. It was the big fur year, and we were ready. On the last day of October, I hauled a load of fish for for the dogs and some grub for myself to the second lake cabin. Returning home the next day, I set 50 traps for fox, mink, and lynx. For the next three days, Mary and I were out from early morning to late at night setting traps on the spur lines. I worked another two days setting traps to the upper cabin and on a spur line running inland. On my way home, I picked up a mink and a lynx caught in traps set the day before. Now I was ready for the first long trip over the main trap line. My sleigh was loaded to capacity with fish, sliced bread, donuts, duffel bag, sleeping robe, axe, and scents for various animals. There's also the 250 Savage for any chance I might have at a moose or a wolf or fox, and the 22 Repeater for shooting grouse or ptarmigan and killing trapped lynx. The trip to Second Lake set a record for pelts taken in a single day. When I arrived at the cabin after dark, my sleigh was loaded with seven red foxes, five splendid dark mink, and two large lynx. It was almost midnight when the last animal was skinned. But the next morning, I was on the trail by the time it was light enough to see. The rapids were still open and many places in the river were unsafe, making for slow, hard travel. With the day so short, there was no stopping to build a noon fire and prepare a meal. I made do with a couple of donuts and a chocolate bar carried in my pockets, eating them while snowshoeing between traps. Though I set only 18 traps for fox and mink, I was very tired when the dogs finally stopped before the Mink Lake cabin. But my day's work was far from done. The dogs had to be unharnessed, tied, and fed. The sled had to be unloaded and things brought in off the cache. There was a stove to set up and a window to put in the cabin. There was wood to bring in and a fire to build. There was ice to be got and melted for water. The toboggan had to be scraped free of ice in readiness for travel tomorrow. When these chores were done, I could get my own supper, hang my clothes up to dry, and go to bed. The next day, I set 20 traps on the three-mile stretch of river to Mink Lake, then went above the cabin setting another 10. The weather was quite warm and the snow for covering fox traps was hard to handle, but I picked up a large mink on the way back to the cabin. The following day, I set traps up Birch River for a distance of 11 miles and again picked up a mink on the way back. I next went to the cabin on Lafert Creek. There, Then I spent a day setting traps above the cabin. On my return to the Mink Lake cabin, I gathered three mink and a lynx. The next day was another really tough one. The distance to the lower joint, the next cabin up Birch River, was long 22 miles. There were many traps to set, and I did not get in until late. 
After the other chores were taken care of, I skinned a red fox caught on the way up. A 20-mile day took me on up to Checker Camp, where we had cached food and dog feed last spring. Even before turning off the river, my eyes, searching in the dark, detected something wrong. The tall cache, looming dimly above the skyline, looked singularly bare. I needed no further confirmation to know that another bear had gotten into in his ruthless work. The heavy wooden grub case was on the ground, smashed and empty. Save for half a candle and a bottle of iodine, not a thing was left. Even a feather sleeping robe and the tarp covering had been carried away, possibly to a nearby den. Inside the cabin, things were a terrible mess. Several stars shone dimly through a gaping hole torn in the roof. The stove had been knocked down and broken, its pipes battered flat. Every dish and pan and kettle and pail was on the earth floor, battered and filled with tooth holes. Shelves were torn from the walls, and strong teeth driven by a malicious brain had ripped chunks from the hewn board table. Standing in the midst of that ruin, without food for myself or the dogs, and only the flickering of a half-candle for light, I recalled bitterly the things that I had read about Black Bear, articles and books by people who vaunted this charm, his utter harmlessness, and found myself wishing that every one of those writers might someday find himself in my present predicament. My practice of carrying bread on the trail instead of baking bannock at each camp was all that saved the day. I had a loaf with me, but a dozen slices of unbuttered bread is too little with which to appease the appetite of a hungry man and fill the bellies of four tired sled dogs. I did the best I could, eating two slices for supper, saving two for breakfast, and dividing the remaining eight equally among the dogs. In the morning, I had to turn back, leaving five days of trap setting unfinished. On the way back to Lower Joint, I filled in the 40 traps I had not had time to set going up. Those already set yielded one mink. I also filled in more traps on the way down to Mink Lake, making about 90 sets between the two cabins. The day netted four mink and a red fox. The fox had worked the trap loose from the toggle, and I had quite a time running him down. On my second return, on my return to Second Lake, I filled in more traps. The 18 I had set going down held eight mink and two red and one silver fox. Again, I skinned fur until late at night. But I forgot about being tired, for tomorrow I would be home. I did not get there until late because it takes time to remove animals from traps and refix the sets, but I picked up seven red and one cross fox and three mink. When I drove into the yard, Mary was astonished and pleased to see my sled sleigh so laden with fur. From the merry gleam in her eyes, however, I knew that she herself had done something pretty special. And it was my turn to be astonished when later in the evening she trotted out the pelts of two large lynx, thirteen mink, seventeen red fox, one cross fox, and two exceptionally fine silvers. Throughout my absence, she had kept on the move, seeing that traps on the spur line were in working order, and one day she had crossed the portage and started up the river, intending to go only another mile or two, but in the first mile she found a beautiful silver fox in one of my traps. The second mile yielded a lynx. This called for going around one more bend to Sulphur Bay. A fine mink was excuse enough for her to go on to the north channel, which added a second mink to her collection. By now she was so enthusiastic over her success that the 12 miles home via the north channel did not seem too much farther to hike. At the mouth of a tiny creek two miles down, she found a nice cross fox in a trap. If this were to keep up, she would have too heavy a load for her one dog 
and might have to stop and do some skinning. Her luck, however, appeared to have run out. For the next seven miles, no trap held an animal. Then, nearing the portage leading to a bay on the lake, she found a red fox. This made the load so heavy that she had to help the dog to get it up the bank and across the portage. Arriving home, she was tired from her 18-mile hike, but she was happy too, for it had been her record fur day. I stayed home one day, repairing sleighs and snowshoes and skinning the fur brought in the day before. Then I spent two days going to the upper cabin and returning via the north channel. Before starting on a second trip to Birch River, we checked the fur on hand. 53 fox, 57 mink, and 10 lynx, and the season was only 23 days old. We had high hopes of reaching that 300 pelt goal. With Mary doing practically all the work on the spur lines near home, besides stretching most of the fur, I was able to make two complete trips over the main lines before Christmas. Bennett came down and spent Christmas with us. That was another trapper further upriver. He wanted to arrange a date for us to make a trip to Providence together. As is natural with trappers, we compared trapline activities. When Jim mentioned having but 43 pelts, we were disappointed for him, and Sandy, he reported, had 109 pelts. This made our own catch of 242 pelts sound big indeed. We began all over again to dream of the outside. Up to this time, conditions for trapping had been perfect. Very little snow to put traps out of working order, and comparatively mild temperatures. But now all that changed, and my next long trip was really rugged. The weather turned bitterly cold, thermometers registering from 35 to 60 below zero. The snow became gritty and the toboggan refused to slide. Every night it was long after dark when I pulled into camp, utterly played out. Much of the fur caught was frozen hard and had to be thawed out for skinning. This meant getting up every two hours to replenish the fire, and then, after a broken night's rest, do the skinning before starting out the next morning. I was working 17 to 18 hours a day. When Bennett came down on the 10th of January, I loaded my sleigh to capacity with fur, about 200 pelts, and the next morning we started for Providence. When we returned 10 days later, it was to find the cabin so filled with drying furs that we could hardly get inside. Mary was catching up on stretching and had 58 pelts hanging up. A bad blizzard furnished excuse for me to remain home for two days. Then I buckled down to the serious business of trapping. Storms and cold weather made for hard traveling and difficulty keeping traps in working order. There was no such thing as an easy day. In March, I took another load of fur to Providence. We did not like to have too much left on hand to take down by canoe. After returning, I made one more trip over the line, taking up all the traps. The fox traps had been up for a month, but were still getting links. We were still getting links. On my best day, nine of the big tuft-eared cats with silky fur went into my carryall. A final check showed that we had far exceeded the 300 pelt goal that at one time seem, seemed an unattainable dream. Our stretchers had accommodated 166 fox, 161 mink, 115 lynx, 4 beaver, and 2 otter, 448 pelts, a record catch we were never again to equal. It meant that we could now do more than dreaming, dream about returning to the outside world we had left so long ago. And about time, too. All winter long, I had suffered from stomach trouble and a pain in my side. Mary's old side pain, too, had shown signs of becoming troublesome again. Seven months without fresh meat added to our annual nine-month period without fresh fruits, potatoes, or other vegetables, 
apparently was not doing us any good. Moreover, I was beginning to feel the effects of those long, hard days on the trail through eight frigid winters. Something of my youth and stamina had been sapped by the numbing cold, had been left somewhere along these subarctic trails. We decided to make a trip outside for the purpose of looking things over and having medical checkups. If we found things to our liking, we would return north to do one more year of trapping and dispose of what equipment we could. So that was the big fur year for for Chick and Mary. And uh, they actually ended up um, moving to the outside. They had a kid, um, a young boy named Bill. And actually they returned to the trap line with Bill for a while. And when Bill was four years old, they finally left the trap line for good. But it was quite a story. Uh, what a what a beautiful story in that in that book, Mink, Mary, and Me by Chick Ferguson. Uh, it's, it's really really fun to read, enjoyable. And uh, if you ever get a chance to pick up a copy, um, I would highly recommend doing so. So with that, thanks again for tuning in. I get to get my butt outside in the cold and get to work. Um, but it was great being here with you. And until next time, keep on talking trapping, keep on thinking trapping, and uh, we'll catch you on the next episode.